Hi, I'm Tim Sanova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck, a podcast about, well, that. A few months ago, my colleague Kate Stadel and I were chatting about alternative hiring practices. I forwarded her information about Grayson Bakery's Open Hiring Institute, and in return, she emailed me a link to a job posting that blew me away. The posting was like none I'd ever seen before. It included a multitude of options for people to learn more about the position and the organization, including an audio version of the application packet and various treatments of the text for different learning modalities and screen readers. It included office hours for interested candidates to speak with members of the hiring committee, a timeline that detailed each stage of the search, and even a section at the close that credited those on the team who created the post. I found that post to be truly inspiring and such a breath of fresh air. Many workplaces these days are looking for candidates who bring diverse experiences to be part of what they hope are inclusive, equitable, anti-racist, and anti-oppressive processes and teams. Yet most organizations post and conduct searches as if it were still 1994. Over the intervening months, I forwarded that posting to countless people as an inspirational example of what a posting and search can and should be. And in turn, those people forwarded the posting to even more people. The most frequent question people have asked in return is, I wonder how the search went. Well, on today's episode, we get to find out. I'm joined by three members of the Toronto-based organization Generator, Christina Lemieux, Serena Fiati, and Ted Witzel. You can find the organization online at generatorto.com. In May 2021, the search committee posted that description as a call seeking new leadership for the organization. And like many of you, I can't wait to hear how it all went. Then, later in the episode, we'll chat with podcasting's favorite co-host, Lauren Ruffin, to get her take on the topic. But first, Christina, Sedna, and Ted, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. I'm Christina Lemieux, she, her. I'm the current lead producer of Generator, although I'm on my way out, which is what has led to this job posting being circulated. I have a 20-year career uh, that has spanned coast-to-coast of so-called Canada, working primarily in the performing arts, dance, theater, opera, and those sorts of things. Well, to ground this in the conversation, Sedan and Ted, how do you introduce yourselves in the various work that you do? Hi, my name is Sedna. I am the Outgoing Artist Producer Training Program Facilitator at Generator. I'm also a member of the Strategic Advisor Committee, and I was on the hiring committee for this job posting. Otherwise, I have over 20 years experience as a performer, producer, creator, director, activist, facilitator um, in, in theater and in film, and my career has mainly been based in Toronto. It's been a real pleasure to on this particular journey through Generator for the last three years and where we've gone and where we started. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about this job posting and, and what and how it really sprung out of our organizational culture. Yeah, over to you, Ted. Hi, I'm Ted Witzel. Uh, pronouns are he, him. I am the board chair at Generator, and I guess I kind of chaired the hiring committee, but that more felt like just wrangling the hiring committee or... or holding the meetings. I, I It was a fairly democratic process, and thankfully, we didn't disagree a whole lot. Um, so I don't really feel like I chaired it. I am an artist. I'm primarily a theater director and performance maker. 
I am also sometimes a writer, a video designer, producer, you know, the many hats of, of making very strange performance. And my grown-up job at the moment is that I'm uh, the artistic associate for R&D and the director of the laboratory at the Stratford Festival in Ontario. For those who might be unfamiliar with Generator and its work, can you give us an overview? Yeah, so Generator is a mentoring, teaching, and innovation incubator that works with performing artists in the indie sector to increase their skills and competencies around producing their own work. So what that looks like for those of you who are listening from outside of Canada is that our sector is primarily funded through public grants given to us by the federal, provincial, and municipal levels. So a lot of our work is helping artists understand how to receive funding from those institutions, what to to do when uh, that money comes into your uh, bank account and how to manage that, as well as how do you make a show happen from idea through to sharing with an audience and beyond. Yeah, we run a variety of programs all around that aim. But I think a thing that's really important to understand about what we do is we work with a very small number of people each year because we're building years-long mentoring relationships with folks, working towards helping them achieve what they'd like to get out of their career or, or what kind of life they'd like to have alongside their artistic practices. As I mentioned in the opening, colleague Kate Stadel forwarded your posting a, a couple of months back when we were talking about different hiring approaches, alternative hiring practices. And I had shared the Open Hiring Institute at Grayson Bakery that famously hires anyone who applies for a job. And then she, right in the next thing, to send your, your job posting, your position posting for the, the leadership search. Can you walk us through what the search was for and how you all approached it? The search was for new leadership and someone with the vision to rethink our model. Um, so in Christina, when she decided to leave her current position, gave us a very long runway. The transition work has been underway since last summer. So, so we've had about a year to plan for the tr- transition, which has made this a lot easier. And, and Christina has been very active in that process, which has been very helpful. <laughs> um and inside those conversations that we were having after Christina decided to move on from the role, we sort of asked ourselves initially as a as a board and in conversation with the generator staff, you know, what do we want generator to be moving forward? Generator itself evolved out of a prior organization, the small theater administrative facility. And that main transition was in moving from being producers for hire to training artists to produce their own work and take the means of production into their own hands. Christina came in to finalize and and build that new iteration that that has been called Generator. And in rethinking or in thinking about our future, we we were very open to another sort of phase of evolution. And I think as a board, we err on the side of uh, risk prone uh, rather than risk averse. So so we really wanted the conversation around this transition to be wide open. And we did a bit of a value setting together with Christina and, and the generator team and, and felt that we were committed to who we currently serve, which is independent artists generally working without organizational like year over year funding working off of project grants and on a project-by-project basis and with small teams, we knew that that is the sector of our community that we still wanted to be supporting, but we were really open to a transformation in how that looked. 
Also last year, in response to some calls for accountability, we conducted an equity and justice organizational review, which was led by Zainab Amadahi, who, who offered up a report with some findings from interviews from, from our various community members, alum of our programs, staff and board members that she had spoken to. And so we we wanted to integrate a lot of that feedback there. And, and you know, in spite of the, the relative relatively small scale of the organization, we're working with an annual budget of about 150,000 Canadian a year and, and a staff that is one full time and three part time. Uh, there was a real desire for decentralizing the the leadership structure or looking at collaborative models and and having community involvement in the search. It wasn't just Christina who was deciding to transition out of her role. We also had several staff, Sedna included, feeling like it was time to take their next steps as well. So it left the landscape pretty wide open for us to invite proposals for what Generator could be and how it could be staffed and organized and structured and how it could meet the needs of those communities. Sedna, do you want to jump in and fill in any blanks? I think it's important to say that the job posting grew out of the overall culture of Generator, which is a space where we're really questioning and trying to reimagine the live performance sector. So we do, like, we're all activists who work at Generator just, like, blatantly. We have very blatant and, you know, cone of silence types of conversations about what we want to change in the sector. And a big part of that is definitely about accessibility. So anything that we do is going to have that lens of how can we do better to make sure that when we are recruiting, which we do a lot, actually, a lot of the work that I've done too in my role as artist producer training facilitator was just like we had a very wide recruitment process um, to try to find the six people who would be a part of that cohort that we would support for the year. And then also support throughout, like even though they finished the APT program, we still kept supporting them with an eye on equity. So really looking at trying to attract people from equity seeking groups. It's really important that when we put stuff out there that we're trying to model the kind of culture that we're trying to create. So I would love it if it just like this came out of nowhere, but clearly it did not. Like it really does reflect how we work and the ways that we're trying to think. And also just trying to even put forth to the industry what is possible. You know, as you said, why do we keep recruiting like it's 1994? We have other options and we know what those are. So let's keep doing them. And let's not even just talk about doing them. Let's like, let's give examples. Let us be the change. I think Christina has been really great about establishing that anything the organization does needs to be a learning opportunity for the whole sector while we are working very like one-to-one with the mentees and Sedna and Christina put a lot of energy into maintaining those relationships. The next sort of circle of of our, our teaching is by trying to develop wise practices that are, you know, kind of public domain or uh, able to be borrowed, emulated, plagiarized outright uh, <laughs> by the by the community. We're, to know that it has been forward, this posting has been forwarded and forwarded by those who received those forwards is exactly what we want. Like we want anything we do, if it is useful or relevant or applicable to another corner of the sector, steal it, please. 
in my intro to thinking that, you know, we, we do work with a small number of people, but to that end, we have a resource called artistproducerresource.com, which is a wiki of all of our information that we have and teach in our programs around how to make all kinds of things in art, in art happen. And in this year in the pandemic, we have a, a fairly active blog where as much as our capacity allows, we've been writing about board governance and the various pieces that we're, we're working on. We, we do, we have a great intention. I just want to promise that we are going to write a, a blog post about this process um, and, and talk to some of the people who, who are not on this call right now and, and ask them to contribute. So yeah, we're, we're always looking at ways to lay bare what we're thinking. And we're also a very unusual organization inside the arts because we don't produce work and we don't, and we aren't hired. So it also allows us to be an instigator of new ideas. It allows us to push a boundary that other people have different consequences for pushing. So I feel in that an obligation to also say the things that everybody's whispering about in the corners that nobody feels like they can say out loud. And this call is part of that and not part of that. Yeah, that's what I find so amazing. We're speaking specifically about the posting. It's still live. You, you might have filled the position. We, we may or may not find out later in this call. But as a resource, Ted, as you said, to, to borrow, plagiarize, whatever. I said, as you were, you were talking, I was thinking about organizations who see, who see this posting or see your work, and it doesn't align with theirs. And like, hey, let's just copy and paste this and put it out. How might that manifest itself differently when it's not aligned with someone's values, but it's like wishful thinking? You know, a wish can be, can be a thing. Dare I say this, and I will admit to really being a person who's about self-help and about woo, but um, <laughs> like as I look at my crystals on my, on my windowsill, you know, I'm that kind of person. So, but I will say this, even if the... Uh, if they copied and pasted some aspects of this and this didn't align with their organizational culture, and then they ended up hiring somebody who did align more with the job posting than the organizational culture, then they would have a conflict, wouldn't they? And it would either turn out well or wouldn't. By attracting folks who align with what you want to be, maybe that's just one step closer to getting there. But oftentimes what we have seen, the flip side of that is that even in terms of, you know, with everything that's happening in the world and this real focus on hiring people from equity-seeking groups, you know, as in leadership positions. My question is always, are they going to stay if your organizational culture hasn't shifted? But if people are really open to it, I think they have an opportunity to shift the culture. So there's nothing to be lost. <laughs> there's nothing to be lost because if you even just make a small shift in that way, you're going to have to, you will feel what will happen when you attract candidates who maybe are more in line with where at least some people in the organization want it to go. Being inside of institutions that are both scrappy and small like this one, and also very large institutions, I'm, I'm kind of a big advocate for large institutions taking brave steps that they may not be ready for yet because they will hurry up and get ready in the best case. Of course, like as Sedna is alluding to, there are risks involved in that. And, and you know, I, I haven't really thought through what would happen if a large institution whose values were disaligned with this ended up with a candidate who felt like a posting like this overpromised a, a workplace culture that was 
not somewhere where they could thrive. I would hope that along the way in the interview process, thinking about an interview process as a reciprocal relationship, you are you are both discovering whether this is a place you can work and whether this place wants you in there. I would hope that that would act as a, a sort of filter, but I, I don't necessarily have a rigorous safety net that I can put out there. Well, let's talk about the process. How do you all feel that it went? <laughs> Christina. <laughs> I mean, I just think it's just a very difficult question to answer. Uh, I mean, I would, what I'd say at foundations is that we didn't get what we expected. I, I in that we thought uh, we would get team applications coming forward who were looking at, you know, taking on the wide variety of the things that were in there. And, and instead we got a, um, everyone interested in being a part of a team, but no one coming forward with a team in place. You know, we had to shift and reconsider what our interviewing process was going to be like once we saw what the applications were because the plan we had kind of envisioned uh, wasn't going to work anymore because there wasn't a team to test or a vision to test. There was a piece of what the final team will look like coming forward. Can we dig into that a little bit more? Because you all mentioned sort of the wide open search. Uh, we'll share the link to the post in, in the description for the podcast so people can read this. You, you said in the post, like, really anything, any model, people coming together, people want to be a part of it. So I'm really curious to, you, you mentioned you had to change how you were going to approach this. If someone said, yeah, I have a three-person leadership team coming in, like, what was that going to look like? How are you going to to take that through the, the process? And, and then how do, what did you need to retool about it? I mean, we had, we had mapped out a pathway, which would be phase one of the interview process was going to be just checking in with values and alignment and, and skill sets and, and making sure that the, the people we were considering uh, were people we really felt could like do the job in a way that would be exciting and surprising to us. And then phase two of that process was going to be offering us up a business model, which we were going to pay them for their time to develop that at generators consulting rate. And, as we realized that we had a lot of, someone offered up the the metaphor of like, I would like to be an, Avenger, an Avenger, but I don't know how to build the, the whole Avengers. As we got a lot of like single Avengers looking for their superhero squad, we realized that the idea of asking for a, a full business plan didn't make sense because these people didn't have their collaborators chosen. They were, and I was, I was really surprised because the way I collaborate tends to be so relational and, and I need to, it requires a lot of trust on the front end for me. I was surprised to, to have so many people who were interested in being match made. That kind of threw me for a loop. Uh, and I think it threw many of us for a, for a loop or it, it, it exposed that the assumption in the hiring pathway we had designed was based around that which just comes from my own bias and how I conduct my own relationships. And I think, you know, I wasn't the sole author of this thing, but that was, I was part of building that pathway. And I think that bias manifested inside of that pathway. And so our, our pivot was to ask for, for the people who, who had applied to, to offer us a program design and to think about how to administer that program. So, so we were really getting them to dig deep in a, in a specific creative impulse or intervention into the community that they wanted to make. 
and present us with that as a way of sort of manifesting their values, allowing us to see what their program design skills were, allowing us some insight in how they were thinking of staffing structure and and from there to kind of tease out what their leadership would look like and, and how it would be oriented within the, the communities that we try to serve. Dare I say maybe the sector wasn't quite ready for this? I think everybody was ready to you talk dare. about it. I dare and I will say it. I think everyone's ready you to dare. <laughs> Okay. So qualify that a little bit. Everybody was ready to talk about these kinds of models and to put forth that this would be a good way to do it. And then we said, okay, do it. And everyone's kind of like, oh, I actually don't know how quite yet. So yeah, Ted, I completely agree with you. It really just tested our assumption that there was like, maybe one, two, three people, well, two or three people who were out there who wanted to get together as a team and say, we have an idea of where Generator wants to go. And I don't think that that group of people existed, or if they did, they decided not to apply. I do feel like, and I'll say something controversial, and this is a hard thing to say as somebody who like works as like, you know, an equity consultant, you know, change is longer than we think it is. And oftentimes people are like, that magical person is out there. And they are, but they may not be out there right away to fill that position. I think there's a real feeling with Generator that we've done a lot of work with the APT program, and it's been around for six years to cultivate, you know, a wonderful generation of arts leaders and arts managers. And some of them are out there slaying the game, but I don't know that they were ready quite yet to take on you know, to take on the leadership of Generator as an individual or as a team. But I f have a lot of hope that they will be. I feel like the next round um, of Generator leadership will really yield the vision that we have now. I think we were just a little ahead of the game of sort of taking the temperature of the industry right now. People are still thinking singular leadership, even as much as they want to be a part of a team. With all of this, I should qualify it with we are really excited about the candidate that we found. We were we were really lucky to be, you know, in many ways, our process as it became responsive was responding to the conversations that we had in that first round of interviews. And we we carried a few candidates forward to the second round of interviews. And we were really trying to create conditions where those first conversations could manifest in in a clearer articulation of the first interview and, and actually make that concrete. And the candidate that we landed on, we did not land on a full co-leadership team yet. We landed on someone to begin to build a team around, somebody who wants to lead collaboratively and brought a really compelling vision for some of the program design that Generator could offer and who we really feel will be a, a great mentor to the community that we aspire to continue serving, especially in the way that like Generator bridges a couple performing arts. We've had alum come through who are based in music as well as in theater, as well as in dance, and lots of interdisciplinary practices that sort of weave around and in between those sort of standard categories. And I think that who we've got is going to be a, a great mentor to anchor that community. The, the reality is with this scale of organization, this is not anyone's end point. The leadership of Generator is not like, aha, I have arrived. I have 
I have, this is my whole career fulfilled. We are a scrappy, small organization, and we hope that people are building their capacity with us and going on to lead in, in different arenas afterwards. And so it'll be interesting when we do that next search eventually. We hope that this current team stays a while. But when we do move on to that next search to see, that's when, as Sedna says, I think we'll really see the impact of generators intervention into the sector in terms of the kind of arts leaders that gather around the organization and that are building their skills and capacities and will continue to and will continue to support the organization in this kind of reciprocal way as they go out and sort of multiply the ideas that are being incubated with us. Look, you know, the the salary budget we put in the post is like $96,000. We're 18 months into a global pandemic. And the way that I had structured the, the staff team at Generator was that I was a full-time employee with three part-time employees who were very specifically hired part-time so that they could have active artist and producing practices outside of their work and along with their work at Generator. So now it's not the time maybe when people are really interested in jobs that pay $25,000 a year because they have other concerns and those other side practices are at are continuing to be uncertain about what they're going to look like as we move through the continuing or recovering pandemic, depending on what angle you're looking at it from on what day it is. So I think it was just a lot, a, a lot to ask of imagination for folks after a year and a half of having really having the rug pulled out. Yeah. How do you want to support artist producers when they can't produce anything? <laughs> exactly. But despite that, we still got such great people coming forward. Of course we did. You we know, so many great people. Yeah. The candidates that did come forward were wonderful and we're really excited to announce the person who, who will be stepping up. But yeah, it's a tough time in the industry. And I think because of that, it's a time where we all can and have been imagining what it could be. But that's as much energy as most people have right now, <laughs> is that imagining that ideation space, it isn't, it, it can, like, we heard from people too, you know, because we did major outreach, you know, um, it was a few people who took on that task, to be fair. But, you know, there was a very long list of people who we reached out to one-on-one. -on -one, and some folks were just expressing overall exhaustion. They were just like, I'm tired. And I can't really envision myself in this position at this time. We're combating that. And that's not something that we have control over. I also think that as a very activist little organization, we exist in many ways in opposition. Uh, like we exist in opposition to the status quo of like, you know, this this horrible work-life imbalance of, of the perpetual burnout of the industry when it's active. and so. I question whether our invitation was maybe too vast. It had too few parameters on it because opposition is a creative state and resistance is a creative state. And in in our call, it was like the like the only the only limiting factor was that we're a really small organization without much money. But there was not an active sector to say like, oh, this isn't working and this is inequitable and this is the thing that I want to fix and solve right now. There is a vacuum where a, an industry used to be. And there is a lot of questions about how it's going to materialize. So to design an oppositional vision without an object to oppose is a is kind of a really hard thought experiment in a time when like Tuesday is a thought experiment. So... <laughs> 
I imagine you received resumes and cover letters. Maybe that's not true. So I guess, did you receive sort of the traditional resumes and cover letters? And or, I mean, what other forms of expression did people or, or expressions of interest did candidates submit? It was wonderful. We definitely got resumes, but we didn't necessarily get cover letters. Instead of or in place of a cover letter, we got videos, we got voice memos, we got a little, really a little mini essay, because that's, I think that was in direct response, of course, to the style of the job posting, was that please do respond to this in the way that is right for you. And people really did take that to heart and they did that. So yeah, our review of that was like, okay, I'm putting my headphones on now and listening to someone talk about what it is that they want to bring to Generator. So it was very refreshing. I think having those options, people used them. And so that for me, what was, uh, was one of the things that was surprising and wonderful at the same time. Can you talk through what the final process looked like? Because you detailed it on the website. Here, here's the stages of, of the process. Can you sort of detail expressions of interest? Did you then a review as a group that you did multiple interviews? You mentioned the, the program development project that, that you compensated people for. What did the whole process sort of in, tactically, I guess, look like? Step one was put an extraordinary amount of labor and consultation into developing the posting. We had sort of laid out the whole process. Step one was developing the posting, and that actually like pushed our staff capacity right to the edge. It, it took up a lot of energy, and we can get into that a little bit more later because I'm supposed to just overview the process. Um, but I should emphasize that part took a lot of work. So we, we developed the posting, and then with our strategic advisors and the board and, and some of our, our community partners, did a whole lot of outreach, um, trying to get the posting in front of the right people. We extended the call to continue intaking, and we did approach several candidates who we thought would be interesting as well. We did a first round of interviews that was conducted. Oh, and then the review of those first application materials was done formally by the hiring committee, which was made up of board staff and strategic advisors. But also the rest of the people who were not on the hiring committee had an opportunity to offer feedback. They were they were available to be read by the rest of the board and, and strategic advisors. We did interviews with the hiring committee. And it was after that first round of interviews, which were really the, the values and competencies interviews, that we said to each of the candidates at the end of those interviews, we thought the shape of this was going to look one way. Uh, we've got a lot of solo Avengers, but no one coming to us with a full team. So so we're going to have to reconsider what this next assignment is. And that's when we did the redesign of the second round interview assignment. It was initially going to be the business plan. In the end, it ended up being the program design project. The candidates who were in that second round were invited to provide any materials they wanted to in advance, or they could do they could do their presentation in a number of formats. They could do it just live on Zoom. They could do it pre-recorded audio. They could do a pre-recorded video. They could give us a slide deck. They could do any combination of those. They could give us a text document. And then after they had given us that sort of plan, however they wanted to outline it, we had a second conversation to interrogate the plan a little bit. We didn't have set interview questions for that round. Uh, we had a Google Doc open that we were all in and jamming in questions and, and I was kind of moderating and throwing those 
questions to the people who wanted to ask them because they were really meant to respond to the proposals that were being offered to us. And then from there, we went into deliberations and the deliberations did not take very long. That that final project was really, really, it ended up being really, really helpful because it, it gave us a very clear sense of, of our candidate. I just want to add something um, that we haven't discussed a lot. That is the the strategic advisor committee. So as a result of what came out of the report that Zainab did, one of the things that was important was to come up with a strategic advisory committee to help lead generator to the next step. A group of people, including mostly board members and an advisor, interviewed people to be on the strategic advisor committee. I um, am a staff member, but I submitted to be, (laughs) and I was interviewed by that committee too. And then from the strategic advisor committee, we had a few meetings. And from that committee, folks said, okay, I want to be on the hiring committee. And so all of those folks were instrumental in putting together the, the job posting, but most of which, you know, the generator staff and Annie and Christina really putting all of that work together. But I think that that pre-step is important. And a lot of places are doing this as we, we work in arts nonprofits. So having a hiring committee is nothing like that's not an innovative idea. But I think it's important to look at the composition of the hiring committee that, you know, those who are on there are oriented to where the organization wants to go. But yeah, that was basically our process. I've been involved this year with about three hiring processes for arts nonprofits. And they've all been pretty similar in that way, where we have kind of a hiring committee put together, an initial call goes out, we respond to that, and then surprising things happen. We're always surprised as to what happens after that first interview. And then from there, we're like, okay, this is how we want to proceed to the second interview. And then from there, it becomes very clear who should be the person. And there ends up being some time. Things are always longer than we think it's going to be. We say it's going to be a month. It'll probably be two. It might even be three. You know, as we collect all the information and figure it out, generators wasn't that long, but I've been in another process that's been taking like about four or five months to do. That's just not unusual, but it's right. It's right to take the time to find the right person and for, to do things by committee, to do things as a group, it just takes longer to do. What Sedna is gesturing towards is that like, this is part of a longer process of organizational evolution. I don't know if it's necessarily a full-on transformation the way the, the move from small theater admin facility to generator was, but it's, it's certainly a moment of evolution for the organization. So there's if I had to rough it out into three steps of that process, the first was to gather the strategic advisors. And that was really because, you know, the conversations that Christina and the board have been having are that the board system is broken. <laughs> like the, the the not-for-profit board system does not end up reflecting the communities that, that arts nonprofits serve. And often the people whose voices that you need in determining organizational direction don't have the time to volunteer and not-for-profit boards in Canada must be volunteer. We wanted to create a, a, a paid body where, where people's labor was being acknowledged that would allow more members of the community to, to have a say in Generator's future. The second stage of that is this leadership transition. And then the third stage of it is actually doing a governance review, looking at alternative governance models. And that's been a, a project 
that Christina has been sort of leading and 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 offering provocations towards, and, and we're speaking with a lot of consultants and community members about how we might restructure and re-envision governance for the organization. We as a board are trying to make ourselves barely relevant and and to turn governance over a little bit more to to the community through paid bodies that actually recognize what that work of of organizational direction is. Such a crucial piece that it comes up a lot. Oftentimes when we're talking to staff of organizations around anti-racism, anti-oppression commitments, and the next question is, how can I get my board to buy into this? Or how can I convince my board? Or how can I convince my board to be more risk-prone when it comes to how we approach hiring leadership and thinking about multiple people coming in? So I'm excited for that research and piece to start coming out, Christina. What's what what's top of mind as, as for people who have that question about how, how do I X with my board when when they might be risk averse? Generator has a long history of having a board that has always been willing to come along on interesting journeys and try new things and, and put whatever things forward. But I think one piece that I coach a lot of small nonprofits with and that we spend a lot of talking about time talking about is that you create your organizational structure and what happens in your rehearsal hall or what's happening around your table at the office is a culture you love. And then you get to your board and it's a different world. And I guess my question or, or what I ask people is like, why is that so? Why are you, why are you putting on a different, different clothes when you walk into that room? So, you know, there, there's a way in which, you know, I, when I work with the board, when I'm, when I'm working with the board and orienting the new people that we're oriented in the culture of the organization and that we, we tell the stories of taking risks and iteration and trying new things and keeping it uh, loose so that there's the opportunity to shift when you need to. And that just becomes part of the conversation always so that they're ready and comfortable when you're like, all right, great. So we're going to take a year to do this gigantic like shift and go into the community and we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And it's, it's like, it's a continuation of the story of like how we've always talked about how we shift our programs and how we're always asking the question of what's working well, what's not working well, what's changeable, what's not changeable. How urgently does it need to happen? The idea that a board is a different place in your organization is by design. And if we want to break those systems down, then we need to bring that culture forward into the board. I would also add that generators board, I think in many ways is reflective of the community in the sense that like they are independent producers or were independent producers for the most part of the arts. So they're really understanding and involved with the work that generator like the people that Generator serves and the work that they're doing. So they're not coming at it simply just as volunteers, which is nothing wrong with that, who care and who like the arts maybe. They are folks who are like deeply invested in what the the sector is doing and how it can be better and deeply invested in serving independent artists. So I think that that's what made it easier for us to embark upon this like sort of strategic process, which I also will give kudos to Christina for actually writing a grant last year in order to be able to fund this work. And that's, that's one of the things, right? Is how do you, how, how is this work funded? The funding of recruitment and strategic change needs, it does need money and resources. So last year there was a grant put in that was successful for us to be able to embark upon this so that we were able to have additional funds to pay for the strategic advisor committee and the hiring committee as well. So when we're in a space of having resources to do things, it does make things easier on some level. We're coming up on time. 
having just, I feel like, barely scratched the surface on on all of the things we've talked about. But as we prepare to land land the plane here, what's resonating for each of you as, as you think about this, this process that you engaged in and, and created? There's a couple of things I want to I want to just add or make sure that we we say. And one is that a thing we haven't mentioned is that knowing how unique of an organization generator is, we have been planning for my departure in terms of creating a reserve fund for several years now. Basically, the second I started, we started to create a reserve fund. So we had, by the time I gave my notice, about $10,000 in reserve that we were able to use in conjunction with the funding that Sedna is speaking about to support this kind of thinking. So I think if, I think the, it, there has to be an interest in investment over the long time, knowing that this is going to take time. In talking to peer leaders, the way I've described this process is that we are running a program. We are actively not working on other things because the amount of time that it has taken the staff and I to do this process is the equivalent of running a giant public program. So everyone's inspired that, you know, we're working with some other companies to, to do it. I'm like, do you have time to run another program right now? And if you don't, then I don't know that I want to encourage you to do this process because it's that labor intensive, especially the call creation portion of it. As Ted alluded, an incredible amount of work. And I think what that points to is like, in terms of the expense, the expense here has been people. And all of this has been a really human-centered process and a labor-intensive process. And and like, it was really important to have a lot of people weigh in in different directions on this. Um, we consulted with an artist named Angela Sun on the accessibility components of this application. And, and she gave us some really important feedback to move forward with. And we continued to have her involved as a consultant through the various stages as we were designing them to weigh in on accessibility for the interviews and and for the program design assignment. There was also a lot of work that Annie Clark, our, our communications manager, put into to building this call. And then between the strategic advisors and the board, I would say there were probably about 15 people working actively on on this program and on on moving it out into the community, on doing outreach around it, on on building the timelines, on on structuring it, and we also really built in from the beginning that it needed to be, you know, it's like when you're directing a show. Like one of the biggest, most important things is casting and and building your collaborative team. You don't know what's going to happen when you put those people together. They're probably going to have better ideas than you, and so you have to allow for the time for that collaboration to actually impact the direction of where you are taking taking this program or process. I think it's really important, uh, a value that Generator has, and one that, that I'm working on also at Nightwood, that they also have, is just around embedding relationship building into your organizational process. That's just something that we always do, actually. Like when we think of recruiting for APT, or recruiting for this, I always see a job posting as an opportunity to strengthen relationships and also build relationships with future candidates and employees. I don't believe that anybody is a magic bullet of a person that is going to come and transform your organization with a magic wand. That's not going to happen. And you're not necessarily just going to find that person just because you snap your fingers or offer a bunch of money. It has to be an ongoing thing with every program you do and with all of your outfacing communications to really be thinking, how do we center care? 
how do we center people as as Ted said in the work that we do that's that's kind of where I'm at having gone through a few of these now I'm just like <laughs> uh, it really is all about those relationships and I'll also say coming from a, pro- a place of somebody who's done executive search if you have the funds you can outsource this work to an executive search firm because basically all the work that we did is exactly what an executive search firm does, you know, full time. They will do they will do that outreach. They'll come up with the strategies. They'll help you pivot. But knowing that Generator didn't necessarily have that. And we also wanted to include the community in a very particular way. It basically needs the same amount of time. It's either you're going to outsource it to somebody else If you're going to do it yourself, know that it's a significant amount of time and labor, but it's worth it because, I mean, if you don't have a people-centered organization, then what do you have? If you don't invest in your people, I don't know what to say. Where are you? And with that, our time has come to a close. Christina, Sedna, and Ted, thank you so much for sharing your insights about this crucial component of crafting thriving organizations and for being on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Nice to chat. And now to reflect a bit on the topic, it's always a pleasure to welcome podcasting's favorite co-host, Lauren Ruffin. Hey, Lauren, how's it going? Hey, Tim, it's good to be back in the studio with you. Yeah, very much so. And we're recording this on your birthday eve. So yeah. how are how are plans? How are the celebrating and festivities going? Everything's going well. We got out to Chama, New Mexico for the first time yesterday. Beautiful. Like... Just the landscape is spectacular. So that was good. Everything else is rickety, though. Like, my body's breaking down. It's almost, I'm 40 tomorrow. My body's like, I'm going to make you feel every minute of that. (laughs) Every minute of the 40 years you've been on this earth. Well, your pictures were wonderful from uh, from the time away. Although I must say, with the, the new phone, the pictures are a little bit too good because I miss the Nokia. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a professional photographer. I'm an awful photographer. Like, but I'm like cranking out pictures now. Like, they're just amazing. Yeah, they're beautiful. So I just had the pleasure of sitting down with members from Generator. And I mentioned to the team that when their leadership search posting landed in in my inbox, you were one of the people that I almost immediately forwarded along to. I mean, like, you've got to take a look at, at this both because of the, the structure and the format and what was included and different modalities for candidates, and also because it was for a leadership transition where they just threw wide open mm-hmm. possibilities. They're like, we're looking for leadership. You can put your name in as as part of wanting to be a part of a shared leadership team. You already have a team. You could be solo, whatever it might be. They described it as being risk prone as opposed to risk averse, yeah, just like through wide, wide open search, see what happens. What were some of your th- initial thoughts when, when you first saw the posting? I mean, you and I have talked about this. I think people forget that the job posting is people's first introduction to your organization. And they like did such a great job introduce people to like to their organization. For me, that was the thing that stood out the most and like the level of thoughtfulness that they put into how the job description was structured the t- timeline, like everything that you would want to know. There's nothing more awkward than being in a job interview. And at the end of like, do you have any questions? It's like, well, I've got lots of questions because you haven't really told me anything. But they've got like the timeline, the process, like who's going to be in the room. I just thought it was just the whole thing was really dope. 
Yeah, down to we will pay you this amount of money mm-hmm. for this project, which is, as we know, is typically not the case. It's you do all of this for free on your own time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the organizations end up using that work product yeah, without hiring the person, without crediting them, without paying them. So the fact that generator said, we're going to give you $500 to do this project, it should take about this much, much time. This is our contractor rate for X amount of time, mm-hmm. um, and, and you'll get it. I found really uplifting. Yeah. It's a great example of how you could incorporate that into a posting yeah. process. Yeah. So you just finished talking to them. What are they like? Are they like angels on earth? Like, tell me about, like, what'd you learn? They're amazing. They're, they're a lot of fun. <laughs> it, like, we set aside an hour for a conversation and could have easily run two hours. Mm-hmm. I talked to three of the people who are on the, the committee in the, on the org- in the organization. And so they know each other. So there's yeah. a rapport there. And so that, you know, is, is obviously great. We talked about so many things. They, they mentioned their equity and justice review that preceded this, that led to the creation of a strategic advisory group. And then they talked about having to pivot during the process because some of their assumptions weren't playing out the way that they thought. Mm. One of them being that people would come as a prepackaged leadership team. They, they oh, received yeah. a lot of people who said, I, I would be happy to be a part of this, but it's not like if the two of us, uh, you know, Pallavi said, yeah. we're a three-person team, we're coming in, um, and, and this is our vision for the organization. So they, they had to sort of retool that process once they saw that they had a lot of interest, interested individuals, but no one coming as a group. And then how that changed the project that they were going to work on and some of the assumptions that they had about it, being artists and having collaborators already. So you're, you're surrounded by people versus that assumption that, oh, people are, are surrounded by, you know, there's the two of us that we could, we're already sort of package deal and you could drop in and think about like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Is it the times in which we're living where people are just exhausted Yeah, and they want to be a part of it, but it takes that extra energy that people don't have right now mm-hmm. to sort of piece this together? Or do people think about leadership teams in a different way than maybe artistic collaborations? So that was really interesting to hear them start to unpack. And it really was, we, we flew through so much stuff. So whatever is in this podcast, there was a lot left. There could be easily be a second episode or even cooler if Generator just started their own podcast. Oh, so we're yeah. talking about it. That's really cool. I mean, I'm always just fascinated by folks who lean into new models of, of working. Like it's really, work is so stagnant right now. And even in the midst of like you and I've talked about how, like what a great opportunity in some ways, <laughs> great opportunity, air quotes. The pandemic was to really reshape work. And I feel like we're still having conversations about like, how do we get back into an office? I'm just noticing too in in the news, like the articles are starting to repurpose themselves in in mm-hmm. weird ways. It's like going, they're pulling things back from like four months ago and then putting back like yeah. maybe we won't be going into the office. Or what does it look like with you know the different vaccine mandates and the uncertainty that's still uncertain as people are returning to the office. Yeah. And so yeah, being able to talk with the group, they're really open and they're like, mm-hmm. we want to share what we're doing so people can use it, plagiarize it, whatever. But it's like part of our process is, is that we're creating something that hopefully could be of use to other people and other organizations, mm-hmm. which is really inspirational. I had drinks last night with Katie, who obviously was doing comms for, well, not obviously to people who are listening, they don't remember, um, but is doing comms with the public education department here in New Mexico. And then 
the guy who I guess runs Sandia National Labs COVID website. And then someone else who's moved out here from New York, but still runs ops for an agency in Midtown. And so like we were all talking about just like COVID protocols and how convoluted just trying to figure out like what's the what day to day and what to tell people because they're all just really have to communicate that out. And I was like, God, like I'm so glad Rock Shots closed their office in October of 2019 because that's something we did not have to think about at all. Yeah, thankful to this day. It'll be, I think when I reach those pearly gates of heaven or maybe the red gates of hell, um, I'll, I'll sit back and, yeah, reminisce on my life and be like, I made one good decision. <laughs> and Tim was there for it. Yeah, it's the challenges that just keep evolving are real. And the amount, you know, I think about like that's the psychic income or the psychic bandwidth that things take that you can't be using elsewhere. Mm-hmm. A lot of times in the nonprofit sector, you talk about resource scarcity and the research goes into resource scarcity. Like if you're always thinking about having to make payroll, you start to make worse decisions in other areas. And I wonder about sort of this psychic burden of the uncertainty around COVID and, and how that is impacting decisions that otherwise would be easier to make or clearer to make, but because we're in this constant area of like things are changing and laws are changing and ma- mandates are changing and then they're coming back and you got to brush off your masks again or you know, whatever might be happening. How does this actually play out in a sort of people-centric organizational design workplace where everyone can thrive? I'm really curious. I wish I had sat in on that conversation with the generator people. It just sounds like it was super cool. Did they talk about their, um, about their Q&As? One of the things they said was that the staff capacity was really pushed to the edge in this process. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that. And it's one of the, the cautions or or heads up that they gave to other organizations who might be interested in, in an approach like they took. If you're not going to outsource it to a search firm or something, like the amount of time that it took them to craft the process, mm-hmm. but just to get it posted, to work through their advisory group, to work through the various team members so that people felt like they had a voice in it, and then to get it posted and really get it out to the networks was a, a lot. And they have a really small, a relatively small team. And so they ended with a really great candidate. So the the, the end of the story mm-hmm. is, and I believe they're announcing this week, who the candidate is. So they found someone, which was great because it's another one of those questions where like, did it work? Yeah, cool process, but like, did this work? So they did find someone that they're really excited about, but they said, looking back, it was a lot, lot of work. Yeah. I mean, I think it's part of any process that that's really intentional. Yeah. Right. If like you can easily post some generic posting and just take whoever comes in and then throw them some random questions Mm -hmm. and then give them a laptop or, you know, password when they walk in the door Mm -hmm. and then let them be, or... How do you structure it so that you're really searching for people of the knowledge, skills, and abilities mm-hmm. for that specific role? And, and to your earlier point, really showing them before they join the organization what it's like to be a part of the organization. Yeah. And then that last crucial step that often gets tossed aside during searches, onboarding the person. Yeah, It's usually the afterthought, as we both know, but like to actually bring someone in to set them up for success is that is a really crucial often thrown away piece. As you're talking, I started thinking about like what 
I mean, the exact opposite of that sort of intentional, well, I shouldn't say that open hire is intentional training, not an intentional hiring process. Do you know what I mean? Like what's the combination between sort of where they were with sort of finding that person that, you know, and there's no such thing as a perfect person, but you know, that, that candidate that really fits versus open hire where you're, you know, essentially just bringing someone and committing to training them until they become a perfect fit. I mean, you know, I'm dying to have a reason to do open hire at some point. Like I'm just fascinated by it. The Grayson Bakery, the model popularized yeah. by mm-hmm. Grayson Bakery. Yeah. The, we talked a little bit about that where you, everyone gets a job who puts their name on, on the sheet. Yeah. I've been fascinated by that for years. We've got to talk to them. I've spoken with their CEO during a conscious capitalism event, but mm-hmm. not in depth. It's one of those examples where that organization got so many questions about their open hiring yeah. that they created their open hiring institute for people to dive into open hiring. Yeah. And figure out if it was what pieces of it were right for their organization. Oh man, that's so, that's so stoked. I'm excited to listen to that whole conversation. It was a good one. Yeah. I was, I was excited to dust the uh, podcast microphones off and and Mm -hmm. chat with the the team. I hope we have the opportunity to record some more tracks. It feels like there's more conversations that are coming up about hiring. I'd really love to dive into equity audits. Oh yeah. Talking to a lot of people about equity audits, a lot of people are asking who does equity audits. And I found it really interesting that in asking organizations who've done equity audits, not many recommend the people that they worked with. <laughs> and does that mean the person's done a good job and it made everybody uncomfortable or they just were actually awful? <laughs> I think that's the question that we yeah. need to dive oh, into. Yeah. There's something really meaty there that I think would be useful to unpack. Yeah. Because I don't know the answer to that question, but that's what I'm yeah. being met with. So we should just have people on and say like, so was this actually a bad audit or are you suffering from white fragility? Like, <laughs> <laughs> was, was it a really good audit? Well, yeah. Was it really uh, awesome? Yeah. It made you super uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's who we, we should start looking for. People who have who've been through audits who are willing to, to chat with us about it, because I think that's a, a question that's coming yeah. up now. So that's cool. Work shouldn't suck. Survivor series. <laughs> 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 you, had another, you had another mini series that we're, that we're running here on, on the Work Shouldn't Suck yeah. podcast. You know, one of the other things I, I, I'm curious to dive into is I saw something, I believe it was produced in May or June of last year. It was, and I don't know if the, the chart was updated, but it's about organizations who provide or who don't provide, it was really highlighting sick leave amid, mm-hmm. amid the pandemic. Did yeah. you see that? No, I didn't see it. But Katie and I were talking yesterday about organiz- about bereavement leave um, yeah. and organizations that require that require you to state who passed away and your relationship to them and to show proof that they actually died. Y'all can't see me, but I have my wow face on. At, at the point when you're grieving that person's mm-hmm. loss and you're required to... Yeah, get documentation that oftentimes doesn't even exist. Doesn't exist yet. Yeah. I mean, thinking about like the timing, I don't think when you know my parents passed away, it was probably two days, three days before it even ended up in the paper. Yeah. And then like death certificates, so you don't get those for from the funeral home for a while. So like, yeah, that's one of those places where you can be an asshole employer, or you can be yeah. sort of human and humane and trusting. Well, why have you created an environment where your employees have to fake a death to get time off? Like, <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah, there's an there's an underlying issue here that would be interesting to uh, explore. 
I was chatting with an employment attorney a couple of years ago because I was curious where the sort of three days came from. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not universal, but a lot of places have around three days for bereavement leave. Mm-hmm. And so I was asking her, like, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. Like, we know where, like, the five-day work week and 40-hour work week comes from, more or less. But she's like, I'm not quite sure, but she was sort of positing that it could have to do with travel, one day to travel, one day for a funeral, one day to come back. Mm-hmm. She said there could be some roots in Judaism where it's sort of a period of mourning, the time you have to bury someone. But more or less, it's just something that took hold. It's probably a copy and paste from employee handbooks, right? I'm not sure why we do it, but we copied it from this employee handbook and you just keep doing it and we don't give any thought to it. Yeah, I also don't know many organizations who really hold to that three days. Like I've, or I should say, I've been blessed to never work for one. Like I've always worked with, it says three days on paper, but it's kind of been like, take as much time as you need. (laughs) You know, like, and people typically come back pretty quickly or the three days doesn't happen in succession. I need a day here. I need a day there. I've got to go clean out this house if it's a parent or, you know, it's, it seems to be pretty flexible, but I was, there is something there about strict bereavement leave that I think we should dive into. Especially as we're dealing with a country that's lost how many people in the last year? Over over above our normal sort of death toll. Yeah, another topic. I think that'd be great. I think there's also something, there's interlocking Venn diagrams or or circles on the Venn diagram of companies that don't provide sick leave amid a pandemic that probably overlap a lot with companies that can't, quote unquote, find people to work for them. Yeah. Because they are shitty places to work or... Like, don't yeah. pay people enough to, to live. So, yeah, I think we've got plenty of material for, for the mm-hmm. podcast to, to keep going into, like, season, I don't know, 18 at this point? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's The Simpsons, General Hospital, and work shouldn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> Inclusivity, open hiring. Really exciting stuff coming out of coming out of organizations right now, especially as a lot of organizations are, are hiring and could be thinking about how to do it differently than maybe they were doing it last year, years before, how the book says you're supposed to do it. So, Lauren, as always, enjoyable to start the day with you. Thanks so much for being part of the conversation. Best way to start my birthday eve ever. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. Until next time, thanks for listening.